Well, hello, H2O. It's Pastor Brian here. And uh, if you've been with us, you know that we are in the middle of this series that we're calling Behold, the Wonder of Christmas. And as we've been working through this series, if you've been with us, you know that we're actually rotating around with two of our close partner churches here in Bowling Green, Covenant Church and Brookside Church. And so I'm really excited today for you to hear from K Pastor Kyle as he comes up and shares with you. Kyle uh, is, uh, is a pastor who's come to Bowling Green from Texas a couple years ago and taken over leading uh, Covenant Church, and he's just become a good friend of ours. We meet together, as I mentioned, and pray together once a month, and it's been so cool just to see his heart for Covenant Church and the community of Bowling Green. So why don't you give uh, Pastor Kyle a nice warm H2O welcome. I always tell people, don't, uh, don't clap until it's over because you don't really know if it's going to be any good. So... Um, my name is Kyle Burkholder. I'm pastor at Covenant Church, like Brian said. It's been uh, 18 months or so since uh, my family moved here from San Antonio. And it has been, yes, yeah, San Antonio. All right. It's the first shout out. We're going to count those. That's one. Um, it's been a journey, um, and it's been really neat to show up to a place that has uh, three churches in particular. I mean, there's a lot of great churches in the area, but there's three uh, with Brookside, H2O, and Covenant that have really found kind of this community. And it's a really neat thing as a pastor to be able to uh, look at someone, a guest that comes into your church, and to, to kind of authentically be able to tell them, I don't, I don't really care where you end up. If it's this place, that place, or the other, they're all great, and they're kind of different flavors of the same thing. And so I just plug in somewhere. And, and churches all over the world, people in cities all over the world aim to say that, and they kind of, they want to mean that. But here we have a great blessing that we can mean that. And so um, I just want to say thank you for what you're doing uh, H2O has already been a friend to me and my family. Brian has been a friend to me and my family. And so keep doing what you're doing because it's incredible and it's changing lives. So keep that up, okay? I get to finish uh, the in the church part of uh, our series. We obviously will get together next week at Christmas Eve, 4.30 and 6 o'clock. And we're going to do that whole thing at Olds Camp and all be together as one big church in the city. Uh, but I get the kind of privilege of being the last of the three to cycle through here and uh, so what we're going to talk about this morning is uh, the perspective of Christmas, sort of Mary and Joseph, uh, but more Mary than Joseph, and it's kind of nuanced even in that. And so what I want to do to start is just uh, read the text. And so in Luke chapter 1, uh, in verse 26, it says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words, was greatly troubled, and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is now in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Do you ever get a message uh, that started out just a little too nice? Um, you get a text message and someone says, you know what, you're just incredible. You get an email. I get emails on Sunday morning, I remember Monday morning. It's the Monday morning pastor email. It says, great sermon yesterday, but 
You ever get that feeling where you get a message from someone and you're like, okay, what's the other shoe that's going to drop here? What's the, what's the, you're buttering me up a little bit is what you feel. And, and I ran across that and I was like, okay, buttering, yeah, yeah, everybody knows what it feels to be buttered up. We all know something else is coming. As a dad, you know what it's like when you're walking past the toy aisle and your, your kid looks at you and is like, dad, you're so handsome. And you think, you're a liar. What is happening right here, right? What is it to be buttered up? And so then I got stuck on that phrase for a minute. And so just a minor, I've got to do this. What, where did that come from is what I asked myself. So I did this internet deep dive on the phrase buttered up and I wrote like a 14-page research paper on it basically. And, and there were two common uh, origins of the phrase. The first was uh, you would put, this is going to be anticlimactic, you could put butter on toast to make it taste better. And I was like, that's not it. That can't be it. So I did, I went deeper into the internet and we found that in India, in ancient India, according to the internet, which is never wrong, um, the, this, this religious sect would get balls of butter and throw it at the statues of their gods as an offering of, of great um, importance. And I was like, that is what we're going to stick with. So next time someone butters you up, imagine yourself throwing um, balls of butter at statues of... Okay, that has nothing to do with anything, but I needed to go there for you. Um, so Mary what we're talking about. Mary hears uh, from the angel, right? And she hears she's highly favored. And I almost sense a skepticism in her response. You who are highly favored. And in verse 28, she, she almost sort of wonders, what's the catch? What is this that I'm, that I'm hearing? What is it that I'm being sold? Verse 29 says she was troubled and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Exactly the same feeling I have on the toy aisle. Wait, 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 I'm troubled, and I wonder what kind of greeting this might be. Greater stakes for Mary, but still. The Greek for the word wonder here is actually the same word for taking an audit, which we don't often, you know, we don't look at the Christmas story and be like, auditing, you know, cool. Like, we didn't name the, the series, Behold, an Audit of Christmas Facts. Because nobody would have come, and you would have been like, that sounds boring, I'll go somewhere else. It's the wonder of Christmas. And yet the word here means audit, to take account. What does that mean? So, so Mary, in a sense, um, looks at this, and she takes take stock of the whole situation. This, this idea is being presented to her, and she starts auditing it as it goes. Tim Keller calls her response, quote, furiously rational. She's asking the questions, is this real? If it's real, then what's really going on? And, and if I can figure out what's really going on, what does this mean for what comes next? What this does, as we look at the story, is it blows up some of our arrogance and our, really our laziness in the way we think about Christmas now. Because if we're honest, we sort of see Christmas as either, either a totally magical thing, like we, the original Christmas story, Mary and angels and the manger. We think of it as this kind of magical thing that one could not help but get swept up in back in the day. Or we think that somewhere within us, and we don't want to admit this, we think that this was maybe a simpler time attended to by simpletons, people who, you know, just weren't as sophisticated as us. And I'm so glad it came to them and they were obedient and now look at what we have as a result. So it's either magical or they were simple. It's kind of where we sit. And what we do is we go, well, isn't it quaint? Isn't the Christmas story so quaint? It's so endearing how faithful everyone was. Isn't it neat? And so what happens is we, we kind of engage in the same thing we do with Christmas movies, is we engage in the willful suspension of disbelief, which uh, in film terms, right, 
you go into a movie and you engage, the second you walk into a movie theater, you engage in the willful suspension of disbelief. So um, who watches Elf around Christmas, right? All right. How many of you actually believe that there was a grown man at the North Pole who needed to go find his biological father in New York City? Nobody, right? Nobody thinks that's an actual realistic plotline. If you do, come talk to me afterwards. We have some free counseling. We can work on you. But when you watch Elf, you engage in the willful suspension of disbelief. You say, I know this is ridiculous, but I'd like to be entertained. And so what I'm going to do is put my disbelief over here, and I'm just going to go with it. I'm going to go with it. The, the swirly-girly gumdrops and all, I'm, I'm going. I'm all in. And that's what you do. And we do that with Christmas in the same way that we do it with Christmas movies. Uh, just by show of hands, the general survey, um, favorite Christmas movie, like that one Christmas movie where you, you go, hey, it's Christmas time, we have to watch this. Or you're decorating the tree and you go, we always have this on. Um, so just quick show of hands, um, for who is it uh, Christmas Vacation? Christmas Vacation people? All right, those are your older people. Okay, um, just kidding, that's mine too. Uh, Christmas Story, Christmas Story, a couple, oh, classics. Um, what about A Wonderful Life? Oh, audible response on Wonderful Life. We get it. You're so cool. Um, I don't watch anything past 1970. Um, Home Alone. This is a, yes, shockingly popular Home Alone. Some people are willing to admit it. Home Alone 2. Home Alone 3. Not a real movie. That's wrong. Okay. Doesn't, doesn't have Kevin McAllister in it. It doesn't exist. Okay. So, so think about it. Your favorite Christmas movie, you think about it, you watch it, you engage in the willful suspension of disbelief, and one of two things is true about it. You either think it's got just that magic to it, it's just kind of magical, or you think it was a simpler time. You watch A Wonderful Life, and it's either magical and or it was just a simpler time. You watch every one of these things, and we kind of just put to the side that it could actually be um, solved by modern, sophisticated thinking. Like, like, let me ruin it for you, right? It, it, Home Alone doesn't exist if Kevin McAllister has a cell phone. The, whole, the, the movie's over four minutes and, hey, mom, you left me at home. Yeah, okay, you're swinging back? Okay, see you later. Click. And then the, the credits roll. You're done. The Griswolds and Christmas Vacation, it doesn't exist if, if there's those, um, those LED kind of point at the house and just flip the switch laser lighty things. Like half the movie is gone with Clark, Clark Griswold putting lights on his house because he just plugs in 12 of those things and it's done. It, it, and so we kind of look at this and we're like, yeah, we actually see Christmas this way. We see Christmas as either a simpler time attended by simpletons or this magical thing that you just couldn't help but I'm sure. The reality is we've lost the wonder of Christmas because we have assigned this simplicity to it or this matte finish sentimentality to it. And we walk through the Christmas season and we paint it kind of as this vignette of what Christmas could be, a characterization of it, but we don't stop like Mary to take account to really do an audit of what the Christmas story is telling us. Mary is not exhibiting simplicity. I would actually argue she is exhibiting uh, great sophistication. She isn't being swept up in the moment. She's actually showing us a healthy skepticism. Frankly, she's reacting exactly like we would. If you put yourself in her shoes, you react with healthy skepticism. This is cool, but wait. And the Bible's all, like, it's okay with this. And this is a thing that, like, in church, it can be strange because you're like, I walk in here, I'm either supposed to believe a thousand percent of everything that's said immediately, or I probably am not welcome here. And the, the reality is, Scripture is littered with the great heroes of faith who possess a healthy skepticism as they walk through their faith journeys. 
And so if there's anywhere that skepticism should be welcome, it's in the church. And we should be willing to walk through that and figure out what is truth, because if we believe that truth is here, then we know that healthy skepticism will lead us to truth, and and truth is ultimately going to to be immovable. There's two kinds of skepticism that we hold, though. There's two kinds of doubts. One, um, One builds barriers. I don't want answers kind of skepticism. I don't want answers kind of doubt. This is a protest doubt. When somebody tells you something and you, your reflexive response is the protest, that can't be true, why do you do that? We do that because we aim to control. Uh, we, we want to stay right. If we think we're right on something and someone gives us a, a counter to it, we, we protest because we want to stay right. So this is most clear in like politics. If you were on one side of the aisle or the other and someone walked up to you and had a really convincing argument, they think, for you um, listening to this other political argument. Our, our first inclination is protest doubt. Skepticism, no, because we want to stay right. We think we're right. We want to stay there. And what you're, what you're bringing to me may mean I'm not right, and I don't want to not be right. I want to maintain control of my life, so protest, because that's one. The other side of that is, is actually a doubt that opens doors and asks questions. This is the doubt that doesn't say, I know. It says, I want to know. This is the one that um, opens the door to truth and doesn't want to stay right, wants to get right. And those are two really different kinds of doubt. So, like, I, I have doubt. I moved here from San Antonio, and we, we ask everybody on earth, where's the best Mexican food? Okay? Because we come from Mexican food, Mecca, and we land in, well, it's Bowling Green, right? So it's cool. And we say, where do we get good Mexican food? And people, everybody's got an opinion. Oh, you've got to try, insert place here. And we are skeptical. I have a healthy skepticism, but it's a once to know the truth. I want to get it right because I really kind of miss some of these things. So can you, yeah, we'll try that. And we have tried a laundry list of places. And more often than not, I'm like, well, that wasn't it. But you know what? If you take their beans and their tortilla and, and you kind of like, I can go by eight places and build a decent meal. This is cool. <laughs> but it's healthy skepticism. So anytime somebody goes, no, 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 you've not been to the place. This is the place. I go, I'm going to check it out. I hope you're right but I'm, I'm holding this doubt because I really want to get it right, and I just don't want to buy on all the way. I, I, want, it, I want it to actually be right before I buy in. It's, it's a problem. The question is, what kind of skepticism do you carry in general in your life? Are you a I want to stay right kind of person or I want to get right kind of person? Because they're radically different. And if we're to be learners, if we're to be growing, if we're to be opening our minds to the greater things of faith, oftentimes we find that if we are, I want to stay right kind of people, we never get there. Ultimately, it's about control. I want to control my life. I want to control my circumstance. I want to control everything. And so if I can just stay right, then I stay in control. And the opposite of that is to surrender. The opposite of that is to go, I don't have it. I don't know it. And I'm not right. And what is it? And this is what we see in Mary, right? She is surrendering control in this moment. She has healthy skepticism, and yet she's willing to surrender control. She says, you know, at this point, she kind of knows what's going on, and she says, so what you're telling me is I'm going to be a pregnant virgin. Okay. What What you're telling me is that if I go through with this plan, that there's basically going to be a tattoo on my forehead. One of my life and one on Jesus's life. One will say that, you know, I was something other than what I was supposed to be, and, and he was illegitimate, right? So, so, again, we back out and we go, well, it was a simpler time. Isn't that sweet? Isn't her faith endearing? 
And then you go, wait, 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 people could count back then. And so if she had a two-year-old Jesus and a 14-month-old marriage, people would go, wait, wait, right? And they would do the math, and they'd be like, well, so either she was an adulteress or a fornicator, two pretty good options, right? Or she had a side thing happening, you know, and that's, a, that's really popular, not, not really what she signed up for. And, and either way, no matter how people judge her, the reality for Jesus is going to be no matter what, because of his age and her marriage, she's illegitimate, 100%. This is what she's facing. Either Joseph and Mary were intimate before they uh, were married, so she's a fornicator, or she was doing something on the side, adulterous, and Jesus is illegitimate. And she looks at this, this, this option laid out in front of her, this plan, not simple, not sentimental, but sophisticated. With a healthy skepticism, she looks at it. The Scripture says she takes an audit of it, and her response is, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. She didn't get swept up in the wonder of it. She took account. And she says, you know what? If you think it's right, I'm your servant. Shame and disgrace I didn't earn. Okay, I can do that. And, and look, like what else is going on? The angel says, you will call him Jesus. Like this is a big deal in this culture. You get to name your child, and the name of the child means a lot. It also signifies some very important things. Your authority over the child, that, that you um, kind of are above the child, you were in charge of the child, you name the child. I said, not this child. This child is going to name you, and he will be in charge, and he will call the shots. You will call him Jesus. In a very real sense, in that moment, Mary becomes the first Christian, in that Mary is the first person to truly submit her life to Christ, if you think about it. She's the first one to go, my hopes, my dreams, my agenda, my priority, no, I'll submit them to Jesus. Religion says you can only be saved by taking your life and bending it to certain rules. That's religion. Christianity says you can only be saved by losing your life and bending it to the ruler. And it's a very real difference. Mary is probably 15, 16 years old. She is now pregnant and unmarried, and her name is known throughout history. Not because of her conquest in war, not because of her great bravery as a general or a politician. She is known throughout history because of her humble surrender. In the Old Testament, Abraham was sent out, and the Scripture said, quote, not knowing whither he went. A faith step. Mary was so much the same. She was invited to step out in faith and take her hands off of her life, not knowing whither she went. And she was just the precursor, right? She was just like the appetizer in the narration sense. Her son, God in human form, Jesus, goes to the cross, takes his hands off his life in Gethsemane in the garden as they're praying before he goes to take the cross and be crucified. He actually prays that he doesn't want the cup. He doesn't want suffering. God, if there's any other way this can go down, I'll take that. And like his mom, not my will though, but yours. I'm your servant. He went out not knowing whither he went. He takes his hands off of his life, and in Jesus surrendering his life, in bending his life, you and I then get to know freedom and hope and joy. And that started with the original moment where Mary says, you know what? Yeah, I'll surrender to that. 
this should stir us in the moment and shape us in our lives. Like Americans, we are known as white-knuckled control freaks. It is what we are about. We want control in everything. Everything we do is tied back to control. Every convenience we long for is really just about control. If you drive through anywhere ever in your life, that is a control mechanism. I can get everything I want. I don't have to get out of my car. Click list. Anybody doing the click list at the Kroger? This is a pretty popular thing. The people are starting to do the click list. You order online, they get it together, and you just go pick it up. I don't even have to see people. I have total control in my bubble. I'm old enough um, to remember when Starbucks didn't have drive-thrus, and it was a huge story that they were going to start drive-thrus. Because previous to that, Starbucks was the third place. They were, you, they were a shop. You come and you sit. You have conversations. You mingle. You mix. And, and you have to come in. We're not going to do drive-thrus ever, never, ever. And then they started doing drive-thrus, and people ate it up. And then, then 60, 80, 93% of their business was through drive-thru because who wants to go in when you can sit in your car with your temperature, with your music, with your whatever, and not ever have to interact with a human being? I don't even use money anymore. I just pay and I just I put my phone out the window. And they, they scan something and a drink comes out a minute later and I don't know what happens, but I, it works. This is what we do. That's, that's about convenience, we say, but what it's really about is control. The other day, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, the other day, I went to the pharmacy. I had to pick up a prescription, and I was hungry. It was like 3 o'clock, and I was like, I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to do that whole 3 o'clock sugar thing. So I, why don't I just go in? I'll get a snack, and then, you know, and I go into the, the place to get my little snack and the, the, the prescription, and I'm looking around. There's a lot of people in there, and it sure was warm in my car, and I have this podcast I was listening to, but I had to turn it off to go in the store. It was a good podcast that was really interesting. And so I find myself, this is like an existential out-of-body experience. I find myself in the, the self-checkout line where you don't have to talk to a human and you do it yourself. And I'm, I'm getting my items, my like um, sugar, and I, I'm swiping it through and I'm putting it in a bag and I find myself walking back out the store without my prescription. I get back in my car, get the temperature just right, open up my snack, turn on the podcast, drive around the side of the building and through the drive through line for my prescription. What is wrong with me is what I'm thinking in the moment. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm really having this moment. I'm like, why am I in this line? I'm like four cars deep. This is 30 minutes of my life, and I'm, why am I doing this? And somewhere within me, I recognize, I was like, it's all about control. Something in me so wanted to be in control that like subconsciously, I just kind of mind meandered through life and got back into my car, and I will, I'm just going to die in that car one day with snacks all around me because <laughs> I don't know what to do. It's about control. Convenience is about control. Name a sin, it's about control. Abuse is about control. Lust is control. Covetousness is control. Greed is control. It's all control. If I can just build up enough of this stuff and I have enough control, maybe I can even save myself. This idea, though, this Christian idea that in order to be saved, we have to lose control, we have to give up control, we have to surrender control, that's totally counterintuitive. Surrender is losing, if you think about it this way, any other area of life. Throughout entirety of history, there is no other place in life where surrender means winning. Surrender is a negative thing. You lose if you surrender. You raise the white flag, you lose. Every other area, every other avenue, every other arena, except Christianity. Christianity is the only place, not religion, but Christianity, where in surrendering your life, you win. Which brings us to this idea that when we lose our lives, we gain the treasure angel uh, tells Mary, don't be afraid. The angel tells the shepherds 
in another place, don't be afraid. The angel tells Joseph, don't be afraid. Of what? You read it all throughout the Christmas story, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. As Jesus is being forecast to people, as as this idea is being laid out in front of the people that are going to carry it through, they keep telling them, don't be afraid. What could they possibly be afraid of? They're about to lose their lives. Saying, don't be afraid. And if the question were asked of what, the angel would say, you are about to lose your life. Your plans, your dreams, the things you long for, the things you thought you were going to do, gone. Because this Jesus is going to change everything. We as a people are marked by control and by loss aversion. Do any uh, psychological kind of research on it and you find that people are much more likely um, to, they, they hate losing much more than they like winning. A thousand different tests, a thousand different clinical trials, they've shown this. People hate losing a lot more than winning. I, I'd rather not lose. Win or lose, and in the ch- no, no, 50-50, I don't want it. I'd rather not play. People hate to lose. Loss aversion is a real thing. Uh, I think about it acutely because I really like my life, which is kind of a good thing, I guess, but I like my wife. I have uh, two little girls. I like them. I like my job. I like where I live. I like my podcast and my snacks around me. I like, I like my life, right? I don't want to lose it. I have loss aversion related to my life. And so I know, like I know as a, as a follower of Christ, I know cerebrally that, that heaven is better than this. Like that is what I'm told, that's what I read, that seems true. I know that. That eternity with God and the presence of the Savior in heaven right now is better than being here with you. I don't want to leave here. I spend my life avoiding death because I'm terrified of losing what I know for what I don't know. I'm so afraid of the unknown that I, I fear losing what I do know. And so I, I really, I like, I live my life. I want to be 183 years old. I don't care. I just want to live forever. And I know that's better, but I still, like all my decisions say, I want this more. I don't skydive. I don't bungee jump, which is just skydiving with a rope, which seems kind of silly, right? I mean, just go for it. Okay. I don't do dangerous things. I try to avoid, you know, I walk on the right side of the street so I can see the cars. Like all the little things, I'm like, okay, we got to do this. got to be safe. And I'm not all that neurotic. Maybe I am, and I'm just now seeing it. But I, I don't know. Like the most dangerous thing I do in a given week is eat Taco Bell. <laughs> which might be the most dangerous of all. But like I'm serious, I don't get on a motorcycle. I won't get on one. Moped, scooter, razor scooter with the little battery, I don't know, that's, we're pushing it. Like, I don't, I don't get on. And I know there are people that ride motorcycles, and they look cooler than me, and they are cooler than me. And, like, this is, uh, you don't think I'm, you think I'm sort of half-joking. We were at my, uh, my, my wife's grandmother's retirement village, um, an assisted living facility, a couple years ago. Out in West Texas, in the middle of nowhere, tumbleweeds, cactus, the whole thing. And... And we pull up, and we're going to give her a visit, and, um, and like the local Harley chapter is doing this really neat thing. They're, they're a pretty cool thing, actually. And, and the local Harley chapter, they got like 30 guys on their big, loud Harleys with their leather and their cool hip things. I don't know what they're called. And, and, so, and they were giving all the, all the old people rides. And so they were taking these people out of the retirement home. And, like, they would take their walker and set it to the side, and then they'd help her over and, you know, they'd kind of lift her leg up on the back of the bike, and they'd put this woman on the bike, 
And then the guy would like, rum, 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 and, and, you know, she would do this. And then they would ride around. They would, go, they would go like 11 miles an hour just around the parking lot. They didn't leave the parking lot. They went in the parking lot, and he would do like a big circle. And then they would come back, and rum, 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 and then they would take the, take the lady off, and she'd get back on the walker, and it was the greatest thing in her life. Like, greatest moment ever. And I was like, this is super neat. So we go and get my wife's grandmother, we bring her out, and they set her walker to the side, and they put her on the back of this guy's bike, and they put a helmet on her, and she grabs onto his vest, and off they go, and you know, like 12 or 14 seconds later, they pull right back in, and, and her eyes are like, yes, that was cool. And she doesn't know my name, but she's really excited about the motorcycle thing. And she gets off, and we're like, that was cool, thanks so much. And he goes, you guys want to ride? And I was like, that's a motorcycle. It's an old folks' home. He didn't leave the park. No, man, I'm cool. That's what I said. <laughs> and he's like, no, man, we'll just go around the parking lot. You don't, you don't want to ride? I was like, I'm, I'm really, um, it's too long to get into, but I don't get on motorcycles. It's sort of a loss aversion thing. There was this paper that was written at Rhode Island University years ago, and I could, and he was like, I don't know what we're doing. And so, and he looks at my wife, and he looks at my wife, he's like, you want to ride? And she looks at me like, you're weird. And she just gets on, you know, and um, a few hours later, she was back, and we don't talk about that anymore. Um, I don't get on motorcycles is the point of the story. Why? Because somewhere within me, there's loss aversion. There's like, what if? I don't know. Mary and Joseph get presented plans that will cost them their life. Cost them every plan that they had ever made. They have to surrender. They have to choose to willingly lose. After the shepherds had visited and paid their respects in this cave, this baby, God with us, in this feeding trough, Scripture says Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Like maybe she got it. Like maybe she was the first person to get it. That salvation came in surrender. Like maybe as she looked around and she started to kind of grasp the immensity of the beauty that was unfolding in front of her, Maybe she realized that the only way to hold all of that beauty is to let go of all the lesser things. The only way to hold all the beauty was to, you had to let go of all the lesser things, the lesser dreams, the lesser plans, the lesser agenda, you have to let go. Jesus said in his own life, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Right? Mary and Joseph were the, the first to, short, to sort of show this. They, they gave up their lives for the sake of Jesus. And then whatever they lost, whatever lesser things that they had to let go of in that moment, they gained treasure that is unspeakably, unfathomably more beautiful. And so I guess my challenge to you would be to take account in this season, to, to do a heart audit where you are. What are you treasuring in your heart in the season? What lesser things are you unwilling to let go of for the greater thing that God has promised you? My prayer is that it would be a community of believers that would treasure not what we might gain, but what we might lose for the sake of Christ.
My prayer is that we uh, would be willing to lose the lesser things, that we would look around the world, we would look around Christmas, we would do an audit of our own heart, and we would say, I am willing to let go of all of these lesser things for the greater thing to be found in Christ. May we lose our doubts that build walls. May we lose our our white-knuckled control. May we lose our fear and insecurity. May we lose our lives and gain Jesus. May we gain a fresh burst of wonder around the treasure of salvation and Christmas. And if we are skeptics, healthy skeptics in this room, may we not lose that, but chase that towards truth. Will you pray with me?